Welcome, everyone. How are we doing today? Welcome to the Max Marzo podcast. And I want to pick up right where we left off. I know there's been a buzz about my comments. And I actually got an argument with my brother about this, about my opinion on Top Gun 1. And I didn't like Top Gun 1. I thought the plot was patchy. I thought the videography was well done, but very confusing. I had no idea what airplane was going in what direction who's chasing who it was very confusing okay and there wasn't much action outside of a sand volleyball scene and everyone was sweaty the whole movie i wasn't really quite sure what was going on and then it ended with really not much of a completion because there really wasn't much of a plot but i saw top gun 2 maverick and you know what a plus right off the bat i'll give you the answer a plus but here are the cliff notes Uh, no i will not spoil it for you so don't worry The plot makes a lot more sense. There's actually an objective to the movie. That's exciting because I can follow it along and know what's going on. The videography was awesome. It was cinematography, whatever the heck you call it. The shots, the video, all in all, fabulous. Excellent. Um, I was was really impressed. I I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoy lots of movies, but I really enjoy movies that know who they are. A Pacific Rim movie for example, is not the world's greatest piece of cinematography. It's not going to move you. It's not going to make you cry. But Pacific Rim doesn't do anything more than what Pacific Rim is supposed to do. A couple of giant robots fighting dinosaur-like monsters from another dimension that has minimal explanation as to how anything got there. And they don't bother explaining it because you're not watching the movie to poke holes in it, you're watching the movie for giant robots to fight monsters. Cool. It knows itself. Top Gun 2 Maverick knows itself. You enjoy the movie. It follows its its theme. It stays true to itself, weaving in action, excitement, and Pete Mitchell, our fearless leader, aka Maverick, doing his thing. So I'll leave it there for now. I don't want to spoil any of it. Well done. Very good. I'd watch it again. I advise watching it in a movie theater. I'm not a big movie theater guy, but this is one that really does do well in a theater. Um, The video, the filming, obviously important, but the sound to go with it, with the jets taking off and all that stuff really does well in a movie theater. So I want to knock that out, you know, off the bat where we knock it out off the bat to start off with. Because I know a lot of you are on the edge of your seats because you take my movie reviews very seriously. And I appreciate that. And so I give it an A+. Well, I mean, really perfect. Well done. I shouldn't call it perfect. No movie's perfect. Or you always got to leave room for improvement. But it knew who it was, and it did that really well. So <sighs> changing topics real quick. Because this is something I don't know if you guys have dealt with, and I'll get to this sports science here in a second. By the way, I forgot to mention this episode, we're going to be talking about some Top Gun which I already talked about. We'll be talking about some sports science, which I'll be talking about. But before I get into the sports science and, and talking a little bit about um, kind of the structure of workouts and how I like to do them, I have my notes here, by the way, which give them to my side. And some of the things I like to do when I start with a new athlete, watching them play this sport, I want to talk about one of the most difficult things anyone can encounter or have to accomplish at a grocery store. So I went with my wife the other day. We wanted to get avocados to make guacamole. By the way, guacamole is one of those side dishes that you can make 
and it is superior to the store-bought version. Now, this goes along with my conspiracy here. The store-bought version of guacamole is always worse than what you can make. It's really easy to make guacamole. You just mush up some avocado, add a little sea salt, add some, some jalapenos, a little cilantro, some red onion, some tomato, how wild you want to get, maybe a little garlic here and there. Excellent. Easy to do. Tastes delicious. A little bit of lime squirt on there. Wonderful. Well done. But the hardest thing about making your own guacamole is the fact the avocados are impossible to get ripe at the right time. Like if you go to a store, we had, it was two for four or whatever it was, four for four, two for four deal, some deal to buy some avocados at a cheap price. And you cannot find four ready to eat avocados. It's impossible. I'm not sure why I've gone there time and time again. It's the most difficult thing to do. And so I might find three or four, but there's like 40 avocados sitting there. And the poor soul that comes after me is stuck you know, weeding through the scraps that I left behind. And so that led me on to my conspiracy theory that big guacamole buys all the good avocados because they're the largest buyer of avocados. If you just look at who is the single source buyer of avocados, it's probably, probably big guacamole. And so they want to buy all the best avocados because they know they can be outperformed by just the common folk making guacamole. I can't just make wonderful Salsa, it takes time, effort. Guacamole is easy. You just mush it up. You make it. Done in 30 minutes, 15, 10 minutes. Very quick. But big guacamole is probably out there buying up all the good avocados in exchange to put out the dog crap ones out there in the world. So you're stuck, not able to make good guacamole because unlike an avocado where you, you put it on a salad, salad, you might put it on a salad, on a sandwich, you only need one avocado guacamole, you need more than one avocado. So it's my belief that big guacamole is against us. They don't want us to outperform them because we know that guacamole is very overpriced relative to the number of servings you get. And the ease of making your own guacamole is so high that they have to create a moat, a competitive advantage, and is selling us doggy doo-doo avocados that cannot ever get ripe nor taste like they should. So that's enough of me rambling on about conspiracies. If you agree with me, let me know. I mean, I've never run into a situation like, oh, there's an abundancy of avocados I can pick from. All these avocados are wonderful. Never in my entire life have I had that situation. So um, we'll get into uh, some of the sports science because that's what you're here for. for. If we have time, we might get into some social media stuff as well. Talk about some things I, I found interesting and useful. And maybe you might too. But first and foremost, let's talk about understanding how an athlete works. An athlete works, how you train an athlete. That's not even a good way. How to start with working an athlete. That might be a better way to describe it. And one of the things I found extremely beneficial is to watch them play their sport. Now, you might not have game tape, film, whatever. I'm lucky enough that I can access like all their shots and history of the world for the athletes I work with. And so I'll watch the last four or five years of their offensive and defensive clips so I get to see how they move. And the reason why that is so important is because we lift weights to facilitate development of specific skills. Lifting weights itself is not this our isolated entity that's going to improve performance. Lifting weights, when directed and purposely used with a skill towards a skill, can manifest a new quality that allows for better performance. So let me explain. Imagine if you want to get better at finishing around the rim. Well, you need to get to the rim first and foremost. If you're not explosive enough to get by your defender, 
or you do have the ball handling skills, but you cannot elevate enough to finish around the rim. You're lacking ability at finishing around the rim, explosive finishing at or around the rim is your vertical ability. So development of single leg explosive vertical output is going to help foster the development of finishing around the rim if you do them synergistically. So I'm going to work on jumping off of one foot explosively at the same time as I achieve that new quality, I'm going to develop the skill of expressing it in sport. And that is something that is so often, I think, neglected is we don't see the lifting to help us actually improve our ability on the field, on the floor, whatever it might be. So this is where that communication and collaboration really comes from. So watching the athlete move, watching them perform, talking them about how they perform, work, lift, not lift, but you know how they play, how are they successful is really important. Because let's give a little thought experiment. Let's say we have Ja Morant and Shaquille O'Neal. Ja Morant, for those of you who don't know, extremely explosive guard in the NBA. He's a little thinner. He's not very heavy, but wildly athletic. Let's think about older Shaq. Shaq is heavier. He's big. He's massive. He's pretty explosive, but he is not slim or thin. He's very large. Now, if I'm a big man and my obstacle is to is Shaq, I have a couple of options to try and beat him. I have some options. I could be bigger than him or more explosive than him. Now, obviously, he's probably the biggest man on the court. So probably being more explosive might be an objective through which you might try and succeed and beat Shaq. On the other hand, if you're Shaquille O'Neal and you are big and large and someone goes, well, Shaq, if we got you really thin, imagine how fast you would be. But Shaq uses his skill with his mass, his physical size to be successful. So maintaining his size in a relative means might be just as important for him as it would be for the opponent to try and get explosive. So in both situations, someone is trying to be successful, but through different means, leveraging their physical abilities to succeed. And in that situation, the weight room should augment and help those physical abilities. Trying to get Shaq really thin probably wouldn't be very beneficial. In the same way, Ja Morant is extremely explosive. He uses his explosiveness to get to the rim. So for him, it's really important for him to keep that explosiveness. Russell Westbrook, very similar. And that's some of the issues he's running into possibly now where he doesn't have the explosiveness as he used to when he was younger, doesn't have the aggressive first step. And so he might be losing some of that and in turn having to maybe lean a little heavier on his ability to shoot some of the skills that he might not specifically have. I'm gonna adjust this window really quick here for those of you watching the video, sorry. So he might not have those specific abilities. Now, the question is, is someone like Luka Doncic? Luka Doncic is also extremely successful, but he's not successful, successful like John Morant in the sense that he's explosive. He uses his physical mass, his size, in a similar way to Shaq would use it, but this time on the perimeter to score. So the whole point of this is we need to be able to understand how an athlete is successful and not just arbitrarily impose specific athletic qualities that may or may not be pertinent for that individual. And based on that situation, you will then select hopefully better qualities that can help them improve. And then branching off of that is another important idea. Instead of like saying, hey, Shaq, um, let's make you the world's greatest ball handler, some arbitrary task that's not relevant to his skill. Maybe having Shaq develop a free throw or develop a jump hook or develop some sort of counter to a different move is a way to branch off of his skills. In conjunction, you might say, well, in order to develop um, 
a pump fake one dribble finish, which I guess would be a branching idea, but maybe no one's ever going to fall for a Shaq pump fake. Maybe Dirk Nowinski would be better. A pump fake one dribble finish, an explosive finish around the rim. Well, he gets people off the ground because he can pump fake, people jump. But to be explosive, he needs that aggressive first step so he can finish. So you're like, look, we're going to work on a first step quickness with this specific skill in mind. Versus, hey, Dirk Nowinski, we're going to get you big and muscular and hope that you can figure out a way to use it. The physical quality is always developed with a skill in mind. So I hope that makes sense. I want to keep that topic there. I don't want to dive too far into it because I want to do dive into something else as well. And that is the structure of workouts. And for myself, again, this is kind of a pivot. So next topic, I want to talk about how I have found structuring workouts and how I've found the idea of removing some of the constraints we apply to our workout structure, especially in the professional setting when we have a large allocation of time can be very, you know, I don't want to say a mind opening or enlightening, but allow for a lot of exploration and thought. So a lot of times we think about a workout, we constrain it to an hour and a half, a 90 minute session. That's typically because growing up, we had school, we had college sports and college you only have so much time to work out. But in reality, that 90 minute session is an arbitrarily imposed constraint when you go into the professional world, because it's not like anyone's going to stop you to work out after 90 minutes. The other question we have to ask ourselves is, does training for 90 minutes actually yield the highest level of efficiency per unit of minutes spent? If I'm working out for 90 minutes, what are all those 90 minutes actually yielding? Well, if I'm getting tired after 45 minutes, in the next 45 minutes, I'm operating at 85% capacity, well, my return on investment in the last 45 minutes actually becomes much less. So we need to think about what we are doing in a means that's effective. What are we doing that is constrained by something that's not actually imposed? And are we doing what's most effective? And asking ourselves the question, could we do better? And that's where this idea of our work, my kind of changed workout structure came from. And we do from our workouts, like three, four, five, 30, typically not four and five. We're like three 30 minute, 35 minute sessions where we are focused, we are locked in, we are performing well, and we're trying to avoid any accumulated fatigue. Because if I accumulate fatigue during these sessions, then I know that I'm going to have to recover from that fatigue. I also know that every unit, every time I have fatigue in a situation, I am now having to operate at a lesser ability. And in reality, what kind of fatigue do we actually incur in sport and how many times we're going to have to be successful under high levels of fatigue. And it's actually for not for some players, it's actually quite a bit for some, not all players. It's extremely high, especially if we're trying to work out for a specific quality. So people go, Oh, but if you work out when you're tired, you get better when you're tired. Well, are you actually working out to just be tired? Because maybe we shouldn't be training these other specific qualities that require not a super fatigued state to get the most out of Think about if we're jumping and running and sprinting. We don't want to be tired because our sprints become jogs, our jumps become half efforts, our one RM, our one rep max or high output stuff becomes less. So we're becoming fatigued, accumulation of fatigue that's strictly self-imposed because of the arbitrary time limit. So what I've thought about is how do we maximize the unit of output per time, 30 minute, 40 minute sessions? How do we expedite recovery, eat fuel after you work out, recover through that means, take a break, rest, down-regulate, and then go back to your workout. So we might take the entire day of working out, four hours of working out like a professional athlete might do, and we might try and find ways to chop it up 
to make sure that each session is being performed at an output that we feel comfortable with in regards to it being a high enough output that we are trying hard and we're able to get the stimulus that we want. And so in that regards too, I also change a lot of my sets and rep structure. I do a lot more sets, a lot fewer reps per set, same total volume, but I find again that that concept of repeated efforts is going to cause fatigue and they're kind of arbitrary. If I have a lot of time, and time is typically the limiting factor in regards to why you don't do so many sets because you do lots of sets of one exercise. It takes a long time to kind of go through it all. But if I have time, that's all a day and I can just keep coming back and working. Well, I'll do things that are 10 sets. I'll do things that are eight sets. I'll do things that are 12 sets. So uh, that's kind of one thing we'll work on as well there. Um, again, managing your sets and reps and controlling the output per set and rep and that structure of volume. And that's something that's been extremely helpful. And so you can have velocity-based trackers on that to help regulate outputs as well. But that general structure seems to be very useful and make a lot of sense for me in the setting that we're in. Um, and it's something that I think you should probably think about as a coach, because maybe we have a lot of self-imposed constraints on our end that don't need to be there. And so consider that. So again, I'll wrap this up. I'll keep it short and sweet. When it comes to training the aspects, think about watching the athlete, understanding the skills, understanding the specific qualities that help support those skills, understand the skills they're trying to develop, and then what physical qualities will help them reach those skills better or faster in a more effective manner. And thinking about efficiency, what are some structures of workouts that we can do to make things more efficient? Can we structure in a way where we have... Um, broken up workouts so we're not accumulating excessive fatigue? Can we do it in a way where we have sets and reps that make more sense in regards to our output? And then understanding those physical qualities is gonna direct those workouts, right? If we're trying to develop some ability to resist fatigue, quote unquote, endurance or something of that nature, well, that workout structure should reflect it. So maybe I do want more sets and more reps. I'm trying to develop things like power and strength and avoid excessive muscle damage that maybe is gonna create soreness when they're trying to develop a skill. Maybe these larger set structures with less reps can be more efficient that way. Um, all in all, things to consider as a coach. Um, and I think I'm going to leave it there for now. I'll come back. I'll obviously have more episodes after this. But for this one, we'll keep it on those two topics. And lastly, I'll talk about very quickly is TikTok. I know, I know. Talk about social media and I'll cover that quick. So um, a lot of people ask questions, you know, how can I use TikTok? Should I use TikTok? My answer to this is pretty short. Someone sent me this. They said, look, um, TikTok's kind of like Twitter. I said, oh, kind of maybe. It's like a video Twitter, maybe not. But one thing I see on TikTok, well, I see two things. I see two groups. I see one group of people who are just trying to go viral, an arbitrary video in which doesn't require much engagement. Well, not engagement, but doesn't re much retention, I should say. But in reality, that's not the world's greatest way to retain followers and build a brand. The second option is to put your face out there, talk on camera, answer questions, short, sweet, and to the point, and then try and provide value. Now, it's not going to be as viral potentially, and you're not going to have as many people potentially see your initial videos, but the retention will be higher because there'll be continuity between your videos. On top of that, I've heard things that Twitter, not Twitter, I should call it TikTok, is becoming more SEO, search engine optimization based, 
People go on there to find bits of information in the search. They're basically look, using it as a video YouTube search or Google search. And with that in mind, if you're making arbitrary viral videos, you're not necessarily going to fit a specific search. So going back to your brand, if your brand is there to resolve a specific problem, you are there because you're providing insights on whatever science, training, fitness, methods of training, PT, rehab, stats, data, I don't care, astronomy, anything like that. Well, having that aggregated database of your videos in the same way that on YouTube, that can be very helpful over time. People begin to watch them, find them, and they search your name. They search that topic using the keywords. That can be really helpful too. I think too often people think TikTok is dancing and it was viral, whatever. And that's what they see because those are typically viral videos. Makes total sense why people think that. But I have seen some accounts do really well with brand engagement and using their face, talking about things they like to talk about, having continuity in their posts. And with that, having it be in line with the structure of who and what they're trying to do as a business. And with that, um, I, I see a lot of people get more retention, more views per video, more engagement, more comments, more questions. And that becomes quote unquote evergreen because those videos live on TikTok and people begin to search that topic or your name comes up along with that topic, they can find videos that way. Something to think about. I've been trying to do something like that a little better, trying to have my face on there, communicate. Um, it's not going to build a following maybe as rapidly as it could, but I think over time it has some potential to kind of, uh, I don't want to say marinate, but over time, like a fine wine, it becomes synergistic. So multiple videos there exist on topics I'm discussing that are related to things I do. And maybe you can drive traffic to other YouTube pages from it, your Instagram pages from it, because you have small clips and digestible content. It's acting as this video library that people can access and acquire and then go through. So think about that, consider it. That's my two cents on TikTok. I'm not very good at it, but that's the route I'm going because I do think it has an interesting way to have some engagement from that means because it allows you also to, to post a lot more than you would on Instagram just due to the sheer algorithm doesn't like the volume on Instagram, but Twitter likes the volume. And so that's kind of where the idea that TikTok and Twitter are kind of synonymous along with the engagement factor on Twitter where you can respond. In this case, in TikTok, we can video respond versus just a written response. So think about that, something interesting. So as always, thanks for listening and I appreciate you guys. As always, take care, feel free to share and whatever to do with these episodes. I appreciate y'all. Thanks and peace out.